What is fundamentalism? Where did it even come from? What does it mean and what does it not mean? What's the difference between an evangelical and a fundamentalist, if there is a difference? You see, a lot of Christians assume that people, Christians, share the same beliefs as they do, that the miracles described in the Bible are literally taken true, and that everybody who wants to spread the gospel and spread the teachings of the Bible must believe that what it says is accurate. The paradox of fundamentalism. We need to establish what fundamentalism is, and in this chapter you're going to see some stuff about, you know, questions about how even fundamentalists disagree with each other on some pretty basic stuff, like should we defend ourselves if we get attacked? Well, if you believe the Bible is literally true and it's God's word, what does that mean? You've got God-fearing people on both sides of different arguments, and I find that very interesting because you'd think there'd be no confusion among two fundamentalist Christians reading the same book, both having the Holy Spirit and a fear of God and a reverence for the text. So what is going on here? That's the point of the chapter. I'm not going to give it any more fanfare. Enjoy it, and then wait for the next episode, chapter 3, because we're going to do the whole book here on the Not Done Yet podcast. Chapter 2, Fundamentalism. What does it mean to believe the Bible? Does it mean agreeing with its overarching ethics, which tell us not to steal and murder and lie? Or does it mean believing its reports of giants as tall as cedar trees, Amos 2 verse 9, and supernatural events in ages before written records existed? Do the stories in the Bible need to be literal and accurate for us to believe them, or just profitable to teach from? Is it good enough that they are loosely based on true stories turned into poetic literature? Are we supposed to believe God inspired men to write every book in the Bible? And if so, what does that mean? Does God implant exact wording in the writer's mind, or possibly even take control of their writing hand directly, as ultra-fundamentalists believe? If God did control the exact wording, then any error would be an indictment of God, and not the fallible men who tried to record the truth. For this reason, fundamentalism is a risky stance, because one error can shatter the whole thing. Fundamentalism is counted by scholars to have started as late as the 1920s in America. Note, the Wikipedia page for it says so, as does the Bible scholarship website, The Voice. Quote, Fundamentalism in the 1920s resulted in the anti-scholarly rhetoric and biases toward biblical study that still echo in the church today. End of note. When a revival movement rejected progressive scholarship and clung to the old faithful Bible as a self-elucidating work, they taught that it was meant for the average person to read, interpret, and stand up for, without any need for further education. 
The 1920s dating of fundamentalism is strange. It begs the question of how we should classify English Puritans, the 1500s, the Dutch Mennonites, also 1500s, or, long before either of them, the French Waldensians, 1100s, who counted the Bible as a sacred work intended intended for the average believer to study personally. Take note that all three of these movements predate the existence of the King James Version Bible, which was only published in 1611, showing how influential earlier translations were on common people. Each of these movements, including the American one, embraced expert commentaries and wider literacy, but mostly as a supplement to Bible study, not a prerequisite. Peter Waldo, John Calvin, Menno Simons, and other figureheads may have sparked such movements and given them guidance, but fundamentalism quickly took on a life of its own, turning the Bible, not opinions of experts, into the core of daily church and household authority. Most traditions rely on others to tell them what the scriptures mean, while fundamentalists believe the Bible's true meaning is within reach of a lay preacher, or perhaps even a well-informed congregant. Because of this, many varieties and offshoots have sprung up across America in particular. There's a good reason why fundamentalism is seen as an American phenomenon. The USA spans a huge geographical area and has only recently lost the pioneer spirit required to settle it all. Pioneers wanted a land of their own and their own little church to go with it. Railroads and highways connected these distant towns during the Industrial Age, while the advent of broadcast media hooked every home and workplace up to the mainstream opinions during the transistor age, and this meant places that had once been self-contained and localized were compelled to integrate into the wider society. Now, with the millennial generation, the internet has made it impossible to avoid global influence, putting local leadership in the most difficult position of all. During those years of relative isolation, fundamentalism made perfect sense, because it protected and liberated Christianity from the authorities who dominated the biggest churches. They were free from European intellectuals and the Vatican, or for that matter, the American coastal elites. America's heartland was defined by homegrown solutions, free speech, and a rejection of worldly power. And naturally, their brand of Christianity reflected that. Major denominations accused these local churches of being born out of schisms, divisions, heresies, and disorder, but that's not true. America's primary philosophy is pragmatism, or at least it was for three centuries. And fundamentalism became popular because it fixed common problems. It did not start in America, and it is not an American phenomenon but the two were a match made in heaven, perhaps literally. Freedom in Christ or Chaos Distinctions can be made between fundamentalists, especially in regard to which parts of the Bible they emphasize. 
Unfortunately, the word container itself has been stretched over time to include any kind of ideological extremist. The term was coined in America in the 1910s to describe those who emphasized five fundamental doctrines of Christian theology. One, the divine inspiration and infallibility of the biblical scriptures. Two, the real virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Three, the unlimited atoning potential of Jesus' death on the cross. Four, the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. And five, the historic reality of the miracles performed by Jesus. A sixth would include the literal return of Christ to earth in the future. Although these may seem like obvious and universal beliefs among Christians, they are not. Liberal theology, for example, has no problem doing away with any of these doctrines while retaining that Christianity is a good story that ought to be analyzed for moral education. Fundamentalism gained notoriety because it stood against the modern attempt to unite all religions and instead maintained that those fundamental beliefs gave Christianity exclusive claim to the truth, the way, and eternal life. They refused to concede that Judaism, humanism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, or any other religion was a valid path to enlightenment or salvation because Jesus Christ alone was the Savior and center of the universe, to whom belongs all worship exclusively. This makes it natural enemies of both ecumenism and syncretism, which are, respectively, the belief that all Christian denominations should unite and reconcile their differences, and the even more extreme position that all religions should do the same, because they are all subjective, compatible, and equal. There was, of course, no gathering of experts to formalize these five or six fundamental beliefs, like some modern Council of Nicaea. The term only recognized what was common among thousands of rural churches. These churches were largely Baptist and Presbyterian, both roughly derived from the older Anglo movements of Puritans and Reformed theology. But since the fundamentalists have no official hierarchy or centralized leadership, they rely on hands-on interpretation and self-organization, they are also inconsistent, if not chaotic. They endorse a degree of local and even personal freedom in Christ not enjoyed by Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, or the more cult-like Protestant denominations, such as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. This liberty allows their style of church to spread quickly, but also makes it impossible to control, which is why, to the thinking of the major organized denominations, fundamentalism is like a weed that grows wildly and saps nourishment from what ought to be a much more healthy, orderly church theology. 
they are more susceptible to fools, con men, and false teachers, but also more open to wise, noble, and daring preachers who would never fit into the confines of a big, slow church bureaucracy. Plenty of Roman Catholics would agree with those five fundamental beliefs, so why are they not included as fundamentalists? Perhaps it's because the label was meant to paint a target on the American Protestant evangelical movement, which rejected the scholar class trying to undermine the rugged old isolationist mentality. Note, let's not forget that American politics underwent the same cultural assault during the yearly years of the 20th century. Americans had been isolationist, wanting nothing to do with overseas conflicts. But just as the transatlantic intellectuals found a way to reinvent the identity of America to being the policeman of the world, they wanted Christianity to undergo the same transformation, merging it back into the global community. End of note. The fact that many Protestants embraced this negative term only shows how their rebellious spirit became the locus or central scene where fundamentalism grew into a self-aware global force against globalism. It is not a denomination, but a feature that can be found wherever believers insist on elevating the text of the Bible, meaning its historic accuracy, theological claims, and importance to mankind, above all other considerations. Note A. Outreach and Tolerance A distinction should be made between fundamentalism and the broader, older term of evangelical, which applies to any Christians who see themselves as messengers of the gospel, called to proselytize others in their daily life. Note, this, as opposed to the Catholic and Orthodox methods, which included forced conversions, top-down enforcement, political pressure, and baptizing babies to control beliefs from childhood. They believe their particular church is empowered to facilitate the sacraments, which move the believer closer to God with mystical efficacy. End of note. Given such a gung-ho attitude of recruitment, it may not be surprising that evangelicals are the top religious demographic in America. Note, Pew Research Center, Five Facts About U.S. Evangelical Protestants. End of note. Fundamentalists are only a fraction of them. Not every evangelical necessarily believes in those five doctrines or would allow them to alienate outsiders. For the sake of making the gospel more appealing to outsiders, evangelicals are sometimes willing to soften or compromise their teachings while talking to strangers. Renowned American preacher Billy Graham was deeply evangelical, but also passionately ecumenical, repeatedly rejecting the idea of proselytizing Catholics or step on the toes of any denomination, 
so long as they claimed to believe in Jesus. He was a major player in the interfaith scene, trying to harmonize international religious communities. He thought that the job of a Christian was to be an ambassador, a friend maker, and a reconciler, not a hardline theological bully. He refused to condemn abortion as immoral, supported infant baptism, and did so with his own children, met several times with popes as his ally, and played loosely with the concept of heaven for the purpose of winning popularity. He chastised non-ecumenical Protestants for being exclusionary and harsh. Note, for a more detailed criticism of Billy Graham from a fundamentalist perspective, see this link. End of note. Despite identifying with the Southern Baptist Convention, which would normally object to these views, Billy Graham was free to teach such beliefs without sanction, because there was no central authority to silence him. Extreme evangelism tries to get people in church views as their top priority, trusting that any confusion will sort itself out over time, while fundamentalists might also call everyone to join their worship service, but warn and reject those who compromise the Bible's authority. Note B. War and Self-Defense On the question of going to war, there is a long history of disagreement between fundamentalists. More accepted, and therefore less debated, is the question of whether it is justified for a Christian to kill in self-defense. Despite clear instructions by Jesus to treat one's enemies with love and non-retaliation, fundamentalists have been known to give latitude to the individual conscience on this matter too. Baptists are prominent members of the U.S. military. Note, According to the Military Leadership Diversity Commission's issue paper number 22, a religious survey of military personnel revealed that Catholics were the largest demographic of any religious group, at approximately 24%, while Baptists were the next highest, at approximately 16%. End of note commonly supporting their constitutional right to own guns and defend themselves and their property, saying that the Bible's prohibition against killing was only about premeditated murder. They tend to lean on the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament stories to justify this position, while more radical adherents to New Testament doctrine insist on only pacifism. Look at the Quakers, and their famous peace testimony, which was expressed by George Fox in a letter to King Charles II. All bloody principles and practices we do utterly deny, with all outward wars and strife, and fightings with outward weapons, for any end, or under any pretense whatsoever. And this is our testimony to the whole world. That Spirit of Christ by which we are guided, is not changeable, 
so as once to command us from a thing as evil, and again to move unto it. And we do certainly know, and so testify to the world, that the Spirit of Christ, which leads us into all truth, will never move us to fight and war against any man with outward weapons, neither for the kingdom of Christ, nor for the kingdoms of this world. The Amish and Mennonites have been the most explicit of all, with a total rejection of not just war, but self-defense of any kind, or even the protection of their own families. Note, in 2006, a psychotic shooter unleashed random violence on an Amish school group, killing several, and the families immediately forgave him. End of note. In strict accordance with the example and teachings of Christ and the Apostles, a thorough account of their history can be found in a priceless tome called Martyr's Mirror. Note, a more full title is The Bloody Theater, or Martyr's Mirror of the Defenseless Christians, written by Thielman J. von Brott in 1660, available today via Herald Press, copyright 1938, Mennonite Publishing House. End of note. Somehow, these groups are all passionate defenders of the same book and teachings. Clearly, there is something about the Bible that confuses even intelligent and God-fearing men. Are we supposed to incorporate the totality of the Bible's instructions into our worldview and internalize lessons from every story in it going all the way back to Genesis? Or stick with only the latest set of commandments meant for us? How much weight should we give to the example of Christ himself? He indeed refused to defend himself, but he also evaded capture until his appointed time had come. For that matter, he also owned no property, forsook his earthly family, abandoned his theoretical career in carpentry, remained single and childless his whole life, and recruited many students to follow him around. At some point, it seems like we are not meant to emulate his lifestyle, but it also seems logical that these are aspirational qualities. And even if we agree that we are meant to aspire to be like Jesus, why did his own apostles not do so more directly? If it's up to the individual to figure it out, the door is open to any number of wacky interpretations. It's another paradox, calling for people of all dispositions to conform to something both impossible and nebulous. What's more, we are told to keep and pass on traditions of the church leadership, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. But today, this could theoretically obligate every believer to listen to whatever harebrained doctrines they inherited from their local pastor. Even more paradoxically, we are told to test and distrust what we're taught. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 21. 
because the false teachers always lurk in the congregation. 1 John 4 verse 1. We are somehow instructed to obey, distrust, test, and enjoy freedom in Christ while being strictly warned to conform and listen to our elders. This is the juxtaposition of the church, embodied in the fundamentalist movement chaos. Justified violence is only one window into this problem. Note C. Expectations in life. Live inspired. Reach your dreams. Become all God created you to be. These are the words that greet viewers on Joel Olstein's ministry website, which is loaded with inspirational phrases about God's plans, blessings, and promises for those who follow him. With 45,000-plus attendees at his church every week, note, Lakewood Church, formerly called the Compaq Center Arena, before being converted into a church it hosted the Houston Rockets, end of note. And even more followers online and on TV, his sermons have given hope to desperate people in all circumstances. He ranks among other famous charismatic positivity preachers, such as Benny Hinn, Jim Baker, Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, Pat Robertson, and Rick Warren. Without conforming to any denomination, these ministries often are called prosperity gospel churches. They are primarily focused on motivation, intention, inspiration, and the power of positive or purposeful thinking. None of them would be considered fundamentalists in the traditional sense, because while they selectively use Bible verses to support their arguments, they are primarily focused on cultivating an environment of positive energy, wealth, happiness, health, abundance, etc. For this reason, they are said to be closely connected to the New Thought paranormal movement of the early 20th century, which was a rival of fundamentalism. The New Thought movement promoted the idea that a person's mentality cosmically altered their circumstances, and that this could be used to magically improve one's life, especially by dwelling on positive hopes and purposeful intention. You can see how this is mixed up with faith. Aside from being American, there is one major parallel between this movement and fundamentalism, which is that they are all independent, not beholden to any larger hierarchy. As such, they are free to pick and choose which parts of the Bible they emphasize. Prosperity gospel teachers often stipulate that people must first allow God to bless them, opening up their minds to radical possibilities. They'll also remind their members to give back to the church or to others, because charity is one of the keys to keeping the blessings flowing. Therefore, in order to receive the wonderful promises, 
one must let go of fears and attachments to what they currently own, encouraging people to give away their current savings as donations, to prove that they are ready to handle bigger blessings. Terms like abundance mindset are commonly heard. They often conflate Old Testament accounts of miracles with New Testament talk of spiritual blessings, applying the rules of ancient Israel to the believer. On the other hand, fundamentalists often point to the very example of Christ himself as proof that we should not expect blessings in this lifetime. Christ's Sermon on the Mount explains that those who suffered persecution, slander, deprivation, hate, etc., would be the ones who got blessed. This stands in contrast to the prosperity gospel message. For every promise of deliverance and hope, there is an example of cynicism in the text. Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. Note, John twelve thirty one, fourteen thirty, and sixteen eleven. He also says his kingdom is not of this world. In John eighteen verse thirty six. End of note. And Revelation shows that he is given power not only to wage war against the saints, but overcome them. Note, Revelation 13, verse 7. Also, Daniel 7, verse 21 and 25. End of note. We are told, A, to be sheep among wolves, B, to be content with food and clothing, C, to hate our own life, D, not to love our family members more than Jesus, and E, to expect to be betrayed by them as enemies. Note, A, Matthew 10, verse 16. B, 1 Timothy 6, verse 8. C, John 12, 25. D, Matthew 10, verse 37. And E, Matthew 10, verse 36. End of note. Such teachings are hardly grounds for happiness. Despite this, we are clearly told not to be afraid. Consider the paradox of fundamentalist Christian expectations over the centuries, even if we don't include today's wilderness of scam artists. There have been long stretches of prosperity and peace for certain groups of Christians, while others have been ravaged by war, persecution, and evil. Did the oppressed Christians fail to have an abundance mindset? Or did the devil afflict them because they were righteous? And if they were afflicted by the devil, isn't that supposed to be a blessing, not a curse? Should we pray for riches and ease, or should we focus so much on the afterlife that we abandon any notion of material comfort here on earth? 
If the rich man cannot enter heaven, why would any Christian want to be rich? Wealth allows us to solve problems, give charitably, create jobs, care for our families, and do good in the world. Is that so evil? But if anyone does not provide for his own people, and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 Is the ideal Christian meant to live as an impoverished evangelist, ready to be betrayed by their family, leaving their household, roaming the world, and ministering to others by surviving on donations and volunteering? Or should they stay put, be wise, create value where they are responsibly, and prosper so that they can take care of their community, donate to others, and become a boon to the needy? Both have a case to make. Note D. Holy Hebrew. How far can fundamentalism's devotion to the text go? Some say that because God does not change, as in Malachi 3 verse 6 and James 1 verse 17, he would also not allow his word, i.e. the Holy Scriptures, to be changed either. Therefore, they indulge the idea that God must have spoken Hebrew when he created the universe, for example. Since he doesn't change, he must never have spoken anything other than Hebrew, nor ever will. Adam and Eve spoke Hebrew, being taught it from God. And so did Noah before and after the world was flooded. Hebrew was spoken during the building of the Tower of Babel, when all the people were unified with one tongue. And then, when God confounded the languages of mankind, Abram and his home tribe of the Chaldeans were not affected by the shakeup, So they kept using it. Naturally, by this logic, Abraham's descendants faithfully maintained this tongue throughout Egyptian captivity for centuries until Moses arrived, who wrote perfect Hebrew without any change in syntax or style from Adam and Eve. This gives us a direct, lossless record of holy words from the beginning of creation to the writing of the Torah. Of course, fundamentalists believe Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible by divine inspiration, and that his version is exactly what we ended up with today. From Genesis to Deuteronomy, every word is considered a divine choice. This means any deviation from the original text, including translations, would defy God's nature because it would prove that he does change after all. Normally, they'll also insist that the King James Bible was the perfect translation of this perfect Hebrew, and therefore, we can have confidence that no words, meaning, or context 
were lost over the millennia. Evidence to the contrary is easy to find, and we will show it in the subsequent chapters. Those who believe in the unchanging Holy Hebrew language are trying to honor God and the Bible, but they inadvertently humiliate themselves and reject the reality of the Scriptures. Those who study the real history of Hebrew may have less cognitive dissonance, but paradoxically, a less glorious claim about God's consistency and ability. Note E. Hidden Torah Codes In 1958, a rabbi named Michael Weissmandel found amazing patterns in the text of the Hebrew Old Testament. To him, they suggested that the original authors had encrypted secret messages in the text which had to be deciphered using mathematical code-breaking techniques. On the heels of World War II, code-breaking was a prized skill across the world, and many intelligent people began to wonder whether there might be codes hidden in older, mystical, and important texts as well. Shakespeare and other classic writings were inspected, but the Bible was the real prize. Rabbi Weissmandel's Bible Code pointed to a miraculous set of codes in the Old Testament, which he was eager to share. These, he said, had to be unchanged over the millennia, belonging to the original Hebrew text. They were also beyond what any human could have accomplished. Weissmandel called his method equidistant letter sequences, E-L-S, because they spelled out a word if you started with a certain letter and then searched for the next letter in the word only after skipping a certain number in between, with the next in the sequence being equally distant from the previous ones. For example, the Hebrew word Torah, or T-O-R-H, because it has four letters in Hebrew, was discovered repeating in both Genesis and Exodus in perfectly equidistant sequences repeatedly with its letters separated by 49 letters each time. Meaning, if you started by picking the first instance of the T, and then 49 letters were skipped, the 50th letter would be an O, and then another 49 letters, followed by the R, and then H, and then even more amazingly, another T would be found after another 49 letters, and the cycle would repeat. The number 49 is significant to Jews because it is the square of seven, the holy number. The number 50 is also important because, according to the Torah, every 50 years is the Israelite jubilee. 
Weiss-Mandel's discovery has been excitedly shared with Jewish and Christian believers ever since. This is almost impossible to believe, suggesting it must be a miracle. This remarkable sequence begins immediately, starting with the very last letter of the very first word of Genesis, Hebrew, Bereshit, and supposedly repeats throughout the entire book of Genesis. And it is then found repeating again in the next book, Exodus, and again starting with the very first occurrence of the Hebrew letter. This makes it statistically impossible for it to be a coincidence. Likewise, the Hebrew word for Torah, spelled backwards, H-R-O-T, is found in both Numbers and Deuteronomy, the last two books of the Torah. Would you believe that these are also separated by the magic number 49 in equidistant letter sequences? That's the claim of the Hebrew codebreakers. Fundamentalists can't help but rejoice when they hear about such a breakthrough discovery, proving that the Bible is a work of God's inspiration. Why would the last two books of the Torah spell Torah backwards, while the first two spell it forward? And what about the middle book, which they both point to, Leviticus? Here, the Bible code says we don't find any ELS word for the Torah, one way or another. Instead, we find a different code. This time, in Leviticus, it's an ELS code for the name of God, YHWH, repeated every seven letters. Yes, they say that you can find Y-H-W-H in a repeating sequence every seven letters throughout the entire book of Leviticus. Combined with the ELS codes for Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what else can we do but praise God for demonstrating His glory this way, woven secretly into the first five books of the Hebrew Bible? Jewish and Christian teachers alike love to promote the discovery of secret codes hidden within the Hebrew Old Testament, which supposedly show the divine inspiration of the books. Note, as per Christian apologetics website Different Spirit, quote, the discovery of significant words spelled out at equidistant skip sequences of letters in the original text of the Hebrew Bible is a powerful evidence that the Bible is a work of God rather than a work of men. End of quote. End of note. With the advent of computers, the ability to find patterns has sped up the process. Ambitious new discoveries have been made, like finding not just one word repeating, but groups of words related to each other in sequence. Computerized code breaking for Bible secrets was pioneered 
by Dr. Eliyahu Rips, who is a staunch Jewish rabbi. As a fan of the ELS codes pioneered by Rabbi Weiss-Mandel, he wanted to go even further, showing how the entire Old Testament was written by God down to the last letter. What he found surprised him, and he has been writing about it ever since. He even makes videos about it in his old age. Note, the Bible Code 100% proven scientifically. Professor Eliyahu Rips at this URL. End of note. Skepticism about such claims is an instant invitation to be judged by fundamentalists, since a belief in the supernatural quality of the Bible is automatic to them, and therefore anyone who promotes God's word as a miraculous work is presumed to be on his side. It would almost be weird if there weren't mind-blowing discoveries happening regarding the Bible with the advent of every new technology and if Jewish scholars were not leading the way. As his chosen people, they are gifted greater insight and appreciation of the Hebrew than anyone, and, therefore, they are closer to the divine tongue which upholds the universe. Going further yet, some fundamentalists who believe Dr. Rips say that he has proved that God planned all major world events from the beginning and encoded them into Scripture to be discovered thousands of years later by advanced codebreakers. Some of his codes require a little bit of imagination, but they do seem incredible once they are discovered and pointed out. For example, a blatant reference to the English playwright Shakespeare emerges using the ELS computer method, Dr. Rips says, because it finds these words in the original Hebrew, Macbeth, Hamlet, and stage. How else would this have appeared in the text as a code except by divine providence? Another one refers to man landing on the moon with the words spaceship and Apollo 13 found in equidistant letters. A very important event, at least for modern Zionist Jews, is the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the fifth prime minister of Israel. And this also has a prophetic code in the Bible. Assassin, Amir, and Tel Aviv. Of course, America is included too, with the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. being alluded to with the sequence To Die and Dallas. Are these starting to sound like a stretch? The author of The Bible Code book, published 1997, Michael Drosnin, says there are thousands of related word groups revealed in the Hebrew like these, and he considers them all valid proof of God's authorship of the Hebrew text. He would like you to buy his books to find out more, 
so you can show them off to your friends and family. In the next chapter, we will look at arguments against the ELS discoveries and their promoters, including an anti-Christian bias that is sure to raise the eyebrows of fundamentalists. Faith and Fault As we probe deeper into the problems of the Bible and its proponents, I ask the reader to stay highly aware of their discomfort level. Ask yourself how it affects your judgment. Do you want to jump to conclusions to escape doubt? Do you latch on to convenient explanations because you are losing your footing? If we believe in something as fantastical as miracles, do we quickly lose our hope because of something as trivial as wording differences? Does the cosmos really depend on the Masoretic text, or has God tolerated imperfections in his word? Faith is indeed empowering, and fundamentalists more than anyone treasure the Bible as a weapon for spiritual warfare. But does this weapon lose its edge when we find mistakes? On this point, I wonder if Jesus did not give us a reminder about having the correct priorities in times of uncertainty. In the fourth watch, Jesus approached them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were alarmed, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be glad, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then Peter answered him and said, Lord, if that is you, invite me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was lowered out of the ship, he walked on the water, going to Jesus. But when he saw how the winds roared, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had entered into the ship, the wind ceased. Matthew 14, verse 25 to 32. Perhaps this happened as a lesson to all future Christians. We defy rational limits by maintaining fundamentalism, but sink into the waters of doubt as soon as we use our rational mind and acknowledge textual problems. If this is the lesson, we truly must stand on what seems to be water. But before we make up our mind either way, we must ask whether a fundamentalist ought to have faith in the purity of the Bible itself as a flawless and unified document, or rather a faith in the God of the Bible, despite whatever difficulties we encounter. I hope this gives you an understanding of why saying you're a fundamentalist, saying you're an evangelical, you believe the Bible, 
doesn't necessarily explain what you believe when it comes to certain doctrines. You can differ between fundamentalists, and I think that's one of the reasons we need to show each other love. Jesus talked about loving each other. That's the greatest thing we can do to each other. Love, compassion, understanding, giving each other grace, giving each other time to learn, time to think about these things. And one of the reasons why this podcast is called the Not Done Yet podcast is because I believe that I myself still have a lot that I could learn. And I think you do too. We all have a lot we can still learn. And once you harden yourself to that, then you see everyone else as just being you know, a challenger. Uh, you become defensive, I think. And I don't want to do that. Yes, I wrote a book called Maybe Everyone is Wrong, but if you read that book or you listen to it here on the podcast, you know I include myself in that. I don't believe I know everything. I might be wrong. That's why my email address is maybewrong at protonmail.com. Feel free to email me. So we need to give each other grace, and I hope God gives us the grace that we give other people. Obviously, I hope he gives us even more than we give other people because we're often stingy with that. Next chapter, just so you know, is going to be the double-edged sword, which is going to talk about the danger of the Bible and, uh, you know, some stuff about Noah's flood, and we're going to get into those Bible codes, the ELS stuff that we learned about here. So lots of stuff to look forward to in the next episode as well. Thanks for listening.